to the news magazine on the America Out Loud Network. I'm Alana Friedman, and this is The Friedman Report. Welcome to the news magazine of the America Out Loud Network. I'm Alana Friedman, and this is The Friedman Report. Well, 2020 has arrived. It seems like we've been talking about it forever. And after months of wondering what the year will be like, here we are. And it looks like it's going to be one heck of a year. The main thing, of course, is that next November, we will be voting for the President of the United States. And a great deal of what we will be doing between now and then will be related in one way or another. A lot of programs at this time of year on radio and television are either recaps of the year that was or forecasts of the year ahead. But what's frequently missing is something that can help us understand how the year that has just ended and the year that is ahead of us are connected and what it means. Well, I think that's important because so many of the things that happened last year aren't finished and are going to color whatever happens this year. So let's start today's Friedman Report with a look at both years, the one behind us and the one in front of us. And let's see if we can't get a better understanding about how those stories from the year behind us will influence the new stories that will develop in the year ahead of us. One of the biggest stories of the year that is sadly being carried forward into 2020 was the pathological determination of the Democrat leadership in Washington and the impeachment of President Donald J. Trump. We've talked about this before many times, and too bad because there are other things, better things to look at. But the entrapment and impeachment efforts that attack the President of the United States is still one of the most important stories of the year. So we just can't ignore it. This effort to get rid of our president has been flawed from the beginning. It was hatched in the sick minds of people who ignored or willfully misrepresented their oaths of loyalty to the Constitution that they took, duly elected congressmen and women who proceeded to ignore the promises they had made to their constituents. The same was true, by the way, for high-level officials in our most important government agencies who joined what became known as the Deep State. They were blind to all considerations except one, to destroy the presidency of Donald Trump and drive him from the White House. At first, they spied on him and his team. And when they couldn't find any crimes to impeach him for, they made some up. And when that didn't work, they called for an investigation that lasted for two years, cost $35 million, and turned up nothing. And when that didn't work, they found a secret leaker whom they called Whistleblower, so they could protect his anonymity, and his role was to accuse the president of nothing. And finally, they held their own investigation in which only they were allowed to call witnesses. Republicans were not allowed to call witnesses in this entire investigation. In the end, they wrote up two articles of impeachment that contained no impeachable high crimes or misdemeanors 
as required by the Constitution. It was all a fraud, a kangaroo court, and it was reprehensible. The investigation was a farce. It was unfair from the outset, unfair. And it set a precedent that America may never able to walk back from. A precedent that allows a kangaroo court in which only one side gets to call witnesses and have a voice in the process. And in which the target, in this case, the President of the United States, is denied his constitutional rights to due process and to confront his accusers. The concept of fairness was lost from the beginning. So here we are now going into 2020 with the leader of the House, Nancy Pelosi, now refusing to release the two articles of impeachment to the Senate, which is going to supposedly try the case. Until she says she can be assured of a, quote, fair trial in the Senate. Is she kidding? The irony is so stark that it would be laughable if it weren't so deadly serious. And yet the Democrats are defending it at the expense of everything else, including their responsibility to their constituents and to the Constitution, which they pledged to uphold. What has happened in Washington in 2019 is continuing, it seems, into 2020. It is the most egregious, disgusting, and appalling behavior on the part of people who took an oath of office to uphold the Constitution, and yet, in the name of the Constitution, have broken half a dozen amendments with smugness and unforgivable arrogance, who spit in the face of the American people, 63 million of whom voted for this president, and no doubt will do so again in November. Millions of Americans are disgusted with the antics and illegal activities of the Democrats in Washington. They think that the Democrats in Congress have ignored their voices and trampled on their rights. But they will not be silenced. 2020, in my opinion, is likely to see an upsurge in support for the president from Americans who are angry and who, like me and maybe like you, think the president has been harassed and abused by the Democrats in Washington. In the end, America is still a place, I think, where fairness has a shot at being a decisive factor in public opinion. Which brings us to the next topic, the elections and the campaigns that will lead up to them. The amazing Democrat race for the top began with a veritable stampede of Democrat candidates who kicked off the campaign season about a year early. And a series of largely boring so-called debates began taking place long before the real start of the campaigns normally begins. In 2016, the Democrats thought that the Republican field of candidates, which at one point numbered 17, was hysterical, and a great many rude comments were made about them. Hey, they said, which of these clowns are you going to support? <laughs> but guess what? In 2019, there were, at one point, 27 candidates, Democrats, vying for a top spot in the race. And in the meantime, some have dropped out and a few more have entered. Who's laughing now? In the beginning of things political, the original group was fairly diverse. That's something that the Democrats are always demanding from others. 
But in the course of the weeding out process, the field of Democrat candidates has become largely white, with several millionaires, and two billionaires. So much for diversity. So where is all this going? Years ago, I built my career forecasting the impact of something that became known as disruptive technology. It was a time when the entire business environment was being dramatically impacted by new technology, computers, and new concepts like just-in-time manufacturing that were dramatically disrupting the way everyone did business. And there wasn't a single industry that wasn't affected in some way. We're still living in a time when technology continues to disrupt our lives more than ever. When our kids are glued to their mini screens and no longer read books, when our lives are irrevocably connected to our smartphones, and some of our closest relationships are built online, and our lives today are driven by the false world of public opinion as revealed on Twitter and Instagram, when we reveal our deepest secrets to hundreds of our closest friends on Facebook, that more or less describes life in the 21st century. And today, we are also living in a time of disruptive leadership, and it is changing our lives every day. On the one hand, we have a president who has smashed the mold for how a duly elected president of the United States should behave. And he has gotten so much more done in the short time, three years, that he has been in office that his presidency is hardly comparable to any other in our history. In 2019, our disruptive world has created a host of new problems that will need to be solved with a host of new solutions. How do we teach our children to think critically when what they are learning in school is how to be a, quote, better person? through new norms of sexual identity and diversity training. 2020 and the decade that will follow is likely to bring a backlash from people with more traditional approaches to education and social behavior. And there are a lot of us. Diversity is a good thing so long as it doesn't compromise the value of the individual, regardless of skin color, religion, country of origin, and all the other factors that currently divide us in this age of so-called diversity. Diversity should bind us together, not separate us. So where am I going with all this? Well, the next year, 2020, will be a decisive year for our country and also for the world, but I'll get to that later. For our country, we are facing what may be the most important election of our lifetime, because while the president, Donald Trump, is now a known quantity, and we know that we can reasonably expect from him support for things like capitalism and free enterprise. We understand that he will always be full of surprises. But the Democrats have a surprise of their own. They have wrapped their platforms around a diverse but stunningly consistent program of socialism where the government will control virtually every aspect of our lives. It is a direct contradiction of everything the Founding Fathers stood for when this country was born. Hitler showed us how socialism could be done with his National Socialist German Workers' Party, commonly referred to in English as the Nazi Party. 
His party supported the ideology of National Socialism, although it was also called fascism and placed at the far right of the political spectrum. But like the socialism of Soviet Russia, its ideology depended on the complete control of the people by the central government. Socialism. So what's the difference between socialism and Hitler's fascism? Well, at the end of the day, not so much. Socialism is an ideology centered around the idea that everything that people produce is in some sense a social product and the property of the community rather than of the individual. Everyone who contributes to the production of goods and services is entitled to a share in it. Nothing actually belongs to the individual, and the government holds the power over the individual by controlling everything, the food supply, jobs, income, health care, even the ability to move around freely, and certainly the ability to speak freely. We have seen the results of such a society in the Soviet Union, for example, which ultimately collapsed. But during its heyday, where people stood in impossibly long lines for a product as simple and necessary as toilet paper, which, like most other products, was rationed. And we've seen it in Cuba, where the people still suffer from the poverty that derives from socialism, and in Venezuela, which today is reeling from the poverty that socialism has brought on the people in the country, which only a little more than a decade ago was the richest country in South America. Today, the poverty in Venezuela is so bad that people find their meals in the garbage that the wealthy throw out. And while the rich get richer in this socialist country, the poor continue to get poorer. Yet somehow, the Democrats have been able to ignore the lessons of history and now demand that this country, the United States of America, must somehow give up its capitalist ideology and join the ranks of failed socialist nations. Free everything except freedom. Our children do not learn history anymore, so how can they be expected to understand this? When the millennials say that they want socialism, that they prefer socialism, what do they know about socialism? Do they know what socialism is? They never studied it, so how can they be expected to understand this? But there is no excuse for people like Elizabeth Warren or Bernie Sanders, both millionaires, by the way, who had more classical educations. They learned history. They learned political philosophy. And yet they still promote a socialist ideology for America. Take the wealth away from the rich, they say, through taxes and other forms of takings. And distribute the wealth among the rest of us, who didn't earn it, by the way, and aren't entitled to it. Remember, I spoke about fairness before. The Democrats seem to have lost touch with the concept of fairness. And they're perfectly willing to do what may not be fair, but is still advantageous to them. We saw that in Washington throughout the phony Trump impeachment hearings. There was nothing fair about them. So how will this work in a socialist society? Well, in every country that has adopted a socialist economy, there are, at the top of the food chain, the privileged few. They live well, they eat well, they dress well, and they have all the things that they feel entitled to. The rest of us, not so much, because although we are given stuff, 
It is usually at the low end of the scale because we have to share everything. Everything is actually community property. The whole socialist system is rigged for the entitled, which still exist in the socialist world, despite all the rhetoric. And the rest of us will have to be satisfied with whatever they choose to give us. Free stuff, remember? In a world where socialism prevails, society, as history has shown us, fails. Initiative is not rewarded, the wealth gap prevails, and poverty is the end product for the mass of the people. Socialism has never worked, and it certainly won't work here. So right now, our country is deeply divided, and it will destroy us unless we do something to stop it. I wonder what the new year will bring. Okay, I see that the clock is telling me that it's time to take a short break, but I'll be back, and then we'll take a quick trip around the world to all the places we've been talking about during the year. Iran, Iraq, China, Israel, Gaza, the United Kingdom, and much more. So don't go away. I'll be right back. Spreading the outlaw truth from sea to shining sea. AmericaOutloud.com is the voice of liberty and justice for all. The goal is to deliver a message of truth, inspiration, and hope to the world. To unite people from all backgrounds and beliefs in an effort to advance humanity. We are the vision of the voices. Welcome to the new era in communications. America Out Loud Talk Radio. Think back to the last time you felt healthy and energized. The best times of our lives occur when we're at the peak of our health, sleeping better, full of energy and focus. We know that fades with age, and you might be feeling the effects of aging as low energy and poor sleep. But it doesn't have to be that way. There haven't been any nutrition systems designed to rejuvenate our bodies as we get older until now. Healthy Cell Pro is the only multinutrient system that impacts the building block of your body, the cell. Created by anti-aging expert and Nobel Prize nominee, Dr. Vincent Giampapa, award-winning Healthy Cell Pro cuts through the complexity of nutrition supplements by simply giving you the purest ingredients, filling dietary gaps to nourish your cells and enhance your quality of life for optimal performance. Visit HealthyCell.com and use code OUTLOUD for an exclusive discount or call 844-869-9958. Just hours before the new year in North America, Iran made a serious miscalculation. On Tuesday in Baghdad, as many as 6,000 men carrying the flags of an Iran-backed Shiite militia which operates under the name of Qtaib Hezbollah, and that means Brigades of the Party of God. They gathered outside the U.S. Embassy and shouted, Down, down, United States! At first they threw water bottles and smashed security cameras outside the embassy walls. And then, in spite of commands from the Iraqi government, who told them through a loudspeaker not to enter the compound, they stormed the embassy compound under orders from... Iran. Once inside the walls, 
They broke through a main door and set fire to a reception area near the parking lot. Smoke could be seen rising from the embassy. These were not civilian demonstrators. They were terrorists, and they carried the flag of their militia. They only obey the orders of their leaders, not the Iraqi government. And here's an interesting tidbit. One of the leaders of Qtaib Hezbollah, which was designated a terrorist group in 2009, is a man named Hadi Farhan al-Amiri who was seen at today's assault on the embassy. In fact, he was one of the leaders. In December 2011, he was invited to the White House by Barack Obama as part of a delegation from Iraq. At the time, al-Amiri was Iraq's transportation minister. But during the rule of Iraqi dictator Saddam Hussein, Amiri served as a commander in the Badr Corps. That was a group backed at the time by Iran's elite Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps, or the IRGC. That group has been responsible for many attacks on Western targets, including American. Did you notice, though, that that visit to the White House was two years after Qtaib Hezbollah was designated a terrorist organization? Just saying. But getting back to the present, President Trump is not Barack Obama. He did not waste any time or offer any hospitality. He spoke loudly and he carried a big stick. He said Iran would be held, quote, fully responsible, unquote, for the attack. And he put his response into a tweet, quote, they will pay a very big price. This is not a warning. It is a threat. Happy New Year, unquote and he immediately ordered 100 Marines into the compound. A tweet from OIR spokesman Miles B. said, quote, We have taken appropriate force protection actions to ensure the safety of American citizens and to ensure our right of self-defense. We are sending additional forces to support our personnel at the embassy. Unquote. And help arrived in the form of 100 Marine fighters in Apache helicopters. Once on the ground, they fought back the terrorists with rubber bullets and tear gas. The State Department announced that, quote, U.S. personnel are secure and there has been no breach. There are no plans to evacuate Embassy Baghdad, unquote. And Defense Secretary Mark Esper reminded the Iraqi government to fulfill its international responsibilities to protect American citizens in Iraq. The green zone, where the embassy is located, is a heavily protected area, and officials were investigating how such a large group of terrorist fighters were able to breach the security and get inside. I think that will be another story for another day. Maybe. Anyway, later in the day, the president ordered some 4,082nd Airborne Alert Brigades into the region. They are scheduled to arrive, massively equipped, later this week. Senator Lindsey Graham said this about the president, quote, very proud of the president acting decisively in the face of threats to our embassy in Baghdad. He has put the world on notice. There will be no Benghazis on his watch, unquote. Iran, as I said earlier, miscalculated. And going into 2020, Iran will need to rethink its tactics 
because they are no longer negotiating with a president who will drop pallets of one and a half billion dollars in cold hard cash. What he will drop, if he must, may be cold and hard, but you can bet your life it won't be cash, and it will very likely go boom. Mm. Meanwhile, back home in Iran, the government is not winning its battle with the people who are continuing their uprising throughout the country. In fact, this is the most widespread and violent uprising that Iran has experienced since the Iranian Revolution in 1979. Although official estimates of the number of dead among the demonstrators are in the hundreds, my sources say that over 2,000 Iranians have actually been killed in the violence. It all began when the government suddenly raised the price of gasoline by 50% overnight. With the economy in shambles and the cost of essentials, food, medicine, and clothing, for example, skyrocketing, the Iranians had reached their limits. But the Iranian government is heartless and came down on the people with a heavy hand. As the Iranians rose up in angry protests and called for the end of the Islamic people's government and the fall of its leaders, the demonstrations were crushed by a crackdown of unrestrained force, including the complete shutdown of telephone and computer internet communications. By comparison, in the Green Revolution of 2009, 72 people were known to have been killed over a period of 10 months. Throughout that uprising, though, the Obama administration stayed silent and gave no support to the Iranian people. Now, according to a report in the New York Times, the city of Mahshar and its suburbs saw the worst of the government's anger. Demonstrators from the city, which has a population of 120,000, blocked the entrances to the city and its large petrochemical plant. When the local security forces could not control the uprising, the government sent in the IRGC to contain the situation. The mass killings that followed was unprecedented. When the Revolutionary Guard arrived, they found dozens of men who were blocking the intersection. The guard immediately fired on them without warning. When one man fired back, the guards let loose with a barrage of machine gun fire, and they killed at least 100 men or more. It was over in moments. And they killed at least a hundred men or more. It was over in moments. Then they piled the bodies on the bed of a truck and took them away. According to reports, the bodies were returned about five days later, but the families had to sign releases that they would not hold funerals or speak to the press. In the end, after three days of fighting, a hundred and thirty people had died at the hands of the IRGC. Iran's government is brutal beyond imagining. Earlier this month, a woman became the 99th woman to be hanged for an unknown crime since Iran's Hassan Rouhani became Iran's president in August 2013. Iran holds the world's record for the number of per capita executions. It is estimated that at least 4,000 people have been executed since Rouhani took office in 2013. I say at least because the real number is unknown. People are frequently spirited away to be executed, and it is thought that most of the executions happen this way. So the ones we know about 
are only a percentage of the actual number. The Iranian government is evil incarnate. In the name of Allah, it murders people indiscriminately in order to keep them in check and secure the powers of the mullahs. Which brings me to the reason for the uprising. American sanctions on Iran are taking a terrible toll on the Iranian economy. According to President Rouhani, Iran has lost more than $200 billion in oil revenue. In fact, over the past two years, since the sanctions were put in place, Iran has lost more than 90% of its oil revenues. And, as a result, Iran's currency has fallen to a quarter of its former value and inflation of more than 40% has crippled the economy. What the Iranian government refuses to understand is that actions have consequences. Iran's insistence on acquiring nuclear weapons is a game stopper for much of the rest of the world. It certainly is for the United States, now that Obama is no longer president and Trump is. As I said before, Trump is responding with a loud voice and he is carrying a big stick. And they'd better pay attention. Okay, here's another story. It's a different kind of story. It's a story about guns. It's another gun story that no doubt has the liberals in fits. It's a story that took place in West Freeway Church of Christ in White Settlement, Texas, on Sunday. The service was in progress when a man standing at the front corner of the chapel pulled out a gun and began shooting. It could have been a catastrophe. It could have been a mass shooting. And in the end, two men died. But the shooter was shot himself almost immediately by a good guy with a gun. You see, the liberals, the progressives, the socialists, they don't understand. After the shooting, Joe Biden declared that the hero of the day, the man who took down the shooter within a matter of seconds and saved countless lives in that crowded church, shouldn't have been carrying a gun in a church. Oh my gosh. But it was possible because of a new law. Joe called it irrational. It allowed Texans with permits to carry in places of worship. It was signed six months ago by Republican Texas Governor Greg Abbott. It's a good bill. It's a smart bill. But Joe called it irrational. It is irrational with all due respect to the governor of Texas, he said. It's irrational what they're doing. And we're talking about loosening access to have guns, being able to take them into places of worship, store them in schools. It's just absolutely irrational, unquote. No, Joe, it's a good law. It's a smart law. There are too many shootings in churches, synagogues, and mosques. This isn't rocket science. If there is a shooter in your church, you want him stopped. And it can be a matter of life and death. We saw that on Sunday. I haven't said this in public before, although I've said it many times in private, more than I care to admit. Joe Biden is an idiot. I recognize that there is room for discussion when talking about gun ownership and use for sport or for target shooting and, oh yes, for self-protection. But to say that people shouldn't be allowed to carry guns 
is just plain dumb. When I was running for Congress many moons ago, I was once asked by a potential supporter how I felt about gun control. I answered him by saying, if there's a bad guy with a gun on the other side of that door, I want to be on this side with a weapon of my choice, which in my case is a Beretta F-92. Unquote. In the case of the church shooting, what could have been a massacre ended in a few seconds, and the would-be killer is dead. Now consider this, and it's important. If he could kill two men in the short time that he had left to live, which was probably no more than two seconds, maybe three, imagine how many people he could have killed and wounded if he hadn't been stopped. We may never know what motivated him, but the fact that he raised his gun to kill, it could have been anywhere, but my gosh, it was a church. And the fact that he raised his gun to kill in a church means that his own life would be the cost, and it was. The others would live because a good guy with a gun was there and he did what he had to do. But crazy old Joe didn't see it that way. He criticized the new Texas law that now allows concealed carry in places of worship. It's a new law. It's a smart law. There are too many shootings in churches, synagogues, and mosques. This isn't rocket science, but it can be a matter of life and death, and we saw that on Sunday. Interesting, isn't it? Joe Biden doesn't go anywhere without armed Secret Service agents tagging along. But he thinks it's quite all right for the rest of us to go unprotected. I will never understand the double standard that guides the rich and famous. Those who rant and rave about the need to get the guns and uh, take them off the street. They're tilting at windmills. There are some 300 million legally owned guns in this country, owned for the most part by law-abiding citizens who want to hunt or practice their shooting skills or have a gun for self-protection. And I will bet that most of the owners of those guns are not the least bit interested in giving up their right to be armed and to protect the people they love, their home, their family, and their lives. The liberals, however, refuse to understand that the criminals with the guns don't care about breaking the law. That's the definition of a criminal, a lawbreaker. So they're perfectly okay carrying a gun in a gun-free zone. Who would have thought? And people like Nancy Pelosi and Dianne Feinstein, who have ranted about guns for years and years, and they fight for ever stricter gun control, live in their secure homes, gated homes, with armed security guards, and they think it's okay for them, but not for us. They would deny that gun-free zones are the least safe places in the country. Well, they can't do much about a criminal with a gun, but they sure do want to take yours away. Okay, well, here's a quick story, another story about guns, about a gun. It's about a guy. You can guess where he's from. He's from California, and he was telling me, he's a friend, and he was telling me that he has a gun. And he was telling me about his gun. It's a Colt 45, and he got it because 
he was mugged once and he felt safer having a gun in his home and that was good and uh he told me that he got a Colt 45 because that's what he was trained on when he was in the army well i asked him i shouldn't have probably but i did how do you feel about gun control i knew he was a liberal and i i didn't know really where he stood because after all he had a Colt 45 but anyway i asked him and he said gun control oh i'm for it really you're for it but you own a gun and he said to me yes i know i uh, i have a gun but i don't want my neighbors to have one really okay <laughs> i guess that's what being a california liberal is all about okay we're going to take a short break and then we'll come back with another story that goes in the section called you just can't make this stuff up so don't go away i'll be right back Hello, this is Lieutenant Randy Sutton, the host of Blue Lives Radio, the voice of American law enforcement. I am a 34-year police veteran. I am also the founder and CEO of an organization that stands behind injured and disabled law enforcement officers. It is called The Wounded Blue. Our website is thewoundedblue.org. We have produced a film. It is an important film. I urge you to watch it. The film details what happens when a police officer or law enforcement officer is shot or stabbed or beaten or disabled, seriously injured in the line of duty. Most people think they are taken care of medically and financially. The reality may be quite different. It is called The Wounded Blue, Service, Sacrifice, Betrayed. The film is available on Amazon, iTunes, and the Microsoft Store. As we say, let the silent voices be heard. Shadow bannon, editing, censorship, blocking, and adherence to political correctness are seen as serious threats to our God-given right of free speech. Suppressing free speech, the very cornerstone of our society, is not in the best interest of our listeners, readers, and those who provide our content. Welcome to the new era in communications. America Out Loud Talk Radio. I talk a lot about California, especially in this section, which, as you know by now, is called You Just Can't Make This Stuff Up. I'm just going to do a small one today because there are so many other things to talk about. You know there's a homeless problem in Los Angeles, right? Well, in 2016, Los Angeles voters approved a $1.2 billion bond to build units to house the city's exploding homeless population. The problem in Los Angeles is so serious that they're worried about diseases like bubonic plague because of all the filth and the rats. Well, what to do with $1.2 billion? Oh, I know. Nothing. Since receiving that bond in 2016, not one housing unit has been built. Not one. But last year, another fund of $2.4 million was used to create a homeless shelter made up of refurbished trailers 
set up within a fenced-in area, so there was some security. Such a shelter could be a temporary home for up to 45 people. Do the math. $2.4 million for temporary homes in refurbished trailers for up to 45 people. And getting back to that $1.2 billion bond, according to an audit that was released in October, since 2016, the cost of building housing units has risen considerably. And the average cost of building 1,000 units today would exceed $600,000 a piece to house the homeless. You just can't make this stuff up. One of the things that the Trump presidency will be remembered for has been called the Trump economy. It has been extraordinary, particularly when you think about how little co cooperation he got from the midterm Congress. To be quite blunt, he got virtually none at all, but he got plenty of harassment, as you know. Okay, the president's achievements have been accomplished anyway, and they're significant. Not, not only did they defy the predictions of his predecessors, not only did they defy the predictions of his predecessor, Barack Obama, he defied the roadblocks put up by the Democrats who gained the majority in Congress in the midterm elections of 2018. The Washington Examiner has published an article in which they listed 289 accomplishments during his presidency so far. That's within the first three and a half years. And they quoted his, well, actually three years. That's within the last three years. And they quoted his 2016 campaign pollster, John McLaughlin, who said about the president, President Trump is a truly unique leader in American history. President Trump is a truly unique leader in American history. He's a kid from Queens who became an international business leader and made billions by getting things when no one said he could. They told him he couldn't be president and beat the establishment, and he did. For two years, the establishment has been telling him he can't do things in Washington, and he's succeeding in spite of them. He never retreats. He doesn't back up. He's relentless. He just wins, unquote. So let's take a quick look at what some of these accomplishments were. Don't worry, I'll be kind. I'm not going to list all 289 of them. So here goes. When Obama was president, he told America that, quote, some jobs are just not coming back. And when Trump said that he planned to bring the jobs back, Obama asked a rhetorical question at a PBS town hall. He said, well, how exactly are you going to do that? What exactly are you going to do? There is no answer to it. He just says, well, I'm going to negotiate a better deal. Well, what? How exactly are you going to negotiate that? What magic wand do you have? And usually the answer is, he doesn't have an answer. Unquote. That's what Barack Obama said. Well, guess what, Barry? He did have an answer. To date, 
President Trump's policies have created so many jobs that there are actually more jobs than people for look than people looking for jobs. In fact, his policies have been responsible for creating nearly 4 million new jobs since he took office. And these aren't the kind of jobs that Obama created, the the little roadwork jobs that lasted for a few weeks and then were gone or the part-time jobs or the holiday jobs. These are real salary-paying jobs. And there are more people working than ever before in our history. Jobless claims are at their lowest in 50 years. There are more job openings than there are people to fill them. And joblessness for blacks, Hispanics, and Asian Americans are at record lows. And unemployment for women is lower than it has been for 65 years. And by the way, how about the negotiations that Obama made fun of? Since he became president, Trump has negotiated new trade deals with Mexico, Canada, Japan, and China. And speaking of China and the tariff war that we've been having, the latest news is that the difference between the di- the latest news is that the differences seem to have been ironed out and the first phase of the and the first phase of the deal is slated to be signed on January 15th. Wow. It was a long time in coming, but it is now practically here. You know the old story about counting chickens before they're hatched? Well, you don't want to do that generally, but this one, this little pip is just about ready to start pecking on that shell, and we are going to have a signed deal with China in January. I've got my fingers crossed. And on January 15th, the signing of the trade deal with China will give a real boost to an already flourishing economy. How's that for negotiating Obama? And one more thing. He kept the promise to recognize Jerusalem as the capital of Israel and the promise to move our embassy from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem. He did that too. And remember, he promised to build a wall? Well, guess what? He's building it. Now, there's a lot more that I could mention, but there are still other stories that I want to cover, so I refer you to the Washington Examiner for the list. Now we come to a less happy story. Between December 23rd and December 28th, there was a spate of anti-Semitic attacks on Jews in New York City. There was at least one attack every day for eight days. And... It called attention to a problem that is growing more serious every year. If you listened to the show last week, you may remember that the FBI has reported that 65% of all religion-based hate crimes are against Jews, even though Jews represent only a little more than 2% of the general population. It's shocking, really. And then on Saturday the 28th of December, on the seventh night of Hanukkah, a brutal stabbing with a machete took place in the home of a rabbi who was celebrating the next to the last night of the eight-day holiday. It's clear we have a problem, but Jewish Americans are not it. Jewish Americans are the victims, and the problem lies elsewhere. 
This is a very difficult subject, and it will take more than a few words to sort it out. But it does need to be addressed, and at the national level, because it's a national problem. Antisemitism is everywhere. It's on the street in New York. It's in a synagogue in California. It's in Congress, for heaven's sake. We have at least two congresswomen, Ilhan Omar and Rashida Tlaib, who are radically anti-Semitic. And they have expressed their anti-Semitism in the halls of Congress. It's shocking, but it's real. I will address all this in greater depth on a future show, but for now, I want to take another tack that shows how deep the problem lies. On Saturday night, as I said, a brutal attack took place in Muncie, New York, which is home to a large Jewish community. And the response to this horrendous attack was largely appropriate. But leave it to the politicians to be inappropriate. Antisemitism is running rampant throughout the United States, on college campuses, in schools, in small towns, in big cities. And New York City Mayor Bill de Blasio blames it all on Trump. What else? In his comments about the attack, he could not refrain from saying, quote, an atmosphere of hate has been developing in this country over the last few years. A lot of it is emanating from Washington, and it's having an effect on all of us, unquote. Well, of course, Bill de Blasio is a Democrat, and there was no real question about whom he was talking about. But he got it completely wrong. President Trump has shown time and time again that he is probably the least anti-Semitic president in American history. Not only are his own daughter and her husband observant Jews, but his actions toward Israel, the only Jewish state in the world, have been groundbreaking. It has become a cliche to remind us that, unlike every president since Bill Clinton, he kept his campaign promise and recognized Jerusalem as Israel's capital. And he proved it by moving the U.S. Embassy from Tel Aviv to the Holy City. And you may also remember that only a few weeks ago, the president signed an executive order that specifically designated Jewish students for protection under the Civil Rights Act because he recognized that Jewish students are at particular risk for harassment and hate crimes. de Blasio and his cohorts blame the president for homelessness, crime, poverty, terrorism, and, oh yes, of course, anti-Semitism. But here's a question that may open some eyes. Whom does the president blame? He blames the people who commit the crimes and the people who allow their cities to deteriorate to such a degree that anti-Semitism becomes a major problem. And that, my friends, speaks volumes about the president and about people like Bill de Blasio, who always have a political axe to grind. Now, another of the problems that we've talked about during the past year that is sadly, sadly extending well into the new year is homelessness. We mentioned it before. 
We'll mention it again. There is no time of the year when the sorrow and pain of homelessness strikes more fiercely than at Christmas time. It is supposed to be a time of happiness and love, and yet the plight of the homeless strikes at the heart. And this problem is so serious that it needs our attention now. Can you imagine being on the street in the cold with only a cardboard box to give you shelter? You know, this past year, a census of the homeless was taken throughout the country on a single night. And more than half a million homeless people were counted that night. And although, overall, the rate of homeless people has gone down slightly in 29 states, in California the rate has gone up 16.4%, adding 21,306 people to the rolls and making California's homeless more than 20% of the nation's homeless population. Do you know what hurts the most in this terrible situation? California is home to some of the wealthiest people in the country. Multi-million dollar homes are a dime a dozen. And yet, it has the highest number of homeless people in the country. But you know, there is some good news. In 2018, the homeless population among vets went down by 2%. And among families, the numbers went down a little less than 5%. In fact, as I mentioned before, 29 states reported declining rates in their homeless population, and that's good news. But here's the bad news. 21 states reported increased rates of homelessness. Homelessness in New York City is the highest since the Great Depression, and that's more bad news. And in California, the rate of homelessness increased dramatically, and although Governor Newsom has expressed frustration at not getting help from Washington, Ben Carson reports that the state has not applied for waivers that would allow it to use Medicaid funds for the treatment of mental illness among the homeless, and that is a big issue. And the president has also invited the governor to call him to talk about the problem. He's waiting. Now, you know, there are solutions to the terrible problems associated with homelessness. Some cities have already begun to address the issues with some noticeable successes. I'd like to believe that there is enough compassion and goodwill among American administrators and legislators that this problem could be addressed and solved so that by next Christmas, it will no longer be a crisis. Now, there are still a lot of topics and a lot of places in this world that we've talked about before and will be talking about again, but we are close to running out of time. And so we won't have time to cover, for example, Hong Kong or Israel or Gaza. I really do want to do that with you. So uh, in the coming weeks, we're going to cover a lot of the ongoing issues and some of the new issues that are going to pop up, and we'll see what is going to develop. In Israel, for example, they're facing a new round of elections, and the situation is still very touch-and-go. We have no idea who is going to prevail. The prime minister, who was also under indictment, or his opponent, who has a totally different approach to how to run the country. We'll see. And then Gaza, of course, 
there's always the possibility of war breaking out from Hamas in the south and Hezbollah in the north. And then there's Hong Kong and many other stories from places and people all around the world. I always tell you how much I enjoy spending this hour with you. And it's true, I really do. And remember, if you have a comment or a question, write to me, Alana at FriedmanReport.com. I look forward to hearing from you. I thank you for being with me. I hope you have a wonderful, wonderful, wonderful year. Have a good week, and I'll look forward to being with you again next week. You've been listening to the News Magazine on the America Out Loud Network. I'm Alana Friedman, and this has been the Friedman Report. Thank you.